meet them. And like I said, we got to meet each other last night at Brother Daniel's church. And and uh, I was going to joke with him when he said that, yeah, he had people say he needed to come meet me. I was like, man, who, 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 who'd you do wrong that they want you to come meet me? But anyhow, but we'll be in Hebrews chapter number seven tonight, Hebrews chapter seven. And as you're turning to Hebrews chapter seven tonight, just have a couple of uh, just quick announcements for you, some things for you to uh, just to think about, maybe be a help to you. Um, just as a reminder, we have these little outreach cards or church tracks, we call them, uh, that we have here. And it says Merry Christmas on it. And on the, in, on the back side of it has a little bit of information about our church and then also has the uh, plan of salvation there. And remember, this time of the year is a wonderful time to go up to people and just tell them, hey, I just want to tell you Merry Christmas. I just want to give you something. I mean, this is a time of year that people are very open, at least to religious things, more than they normally are. And we have plenty of these in the back. You say, Phil, I took some. Don't look like there's a lot left. I got a big box. You know, we can get you plenty of these if you need some. And it's just a good thing to invite people to church. Uh, we are going to do on the Sunday before Christmas. I believe it's the 22nd, that morning service. We're going to have kind of a Christmas-themed kind of service there. We're going to read the Christmas story to the children, and we're going to have a time of special music, different things that we'll be doing that we're excited about that time on that morning service. And really all the Sundays that we have coming up, hear about that. But in, in the idea of missions, and I appreciate Brother Norman being here and his wife being here with us, uh, just a reminder that this particular Sunday we have coming up is what we've been practicing the last three or four years at our church. We call it Christmas for Missions. And in case you haven't been a part of our church or know what I mean, is that this Sunday morning, the offering that we take up in the morning service, we do a special love offering that we do just to give to our missionaries. Because as, uh, as the Normans probably know, during the times of holidays and different things, it's that all the time you don't, you don't know if you get all your support. You know, sometimes churches, for whatever reasons, you weren't able to give them support. And during the holidays and times, you know, people are away from their families, away from different things. And uh, this is a time that we want to really be a blessing to them above and beyond our normal faith promise support. So I want to encourage you to pray about being a part of that particular offering as little or as much as you can do just to be a blessing to them. And I know it will be a blessing to all of our missionaries. We'll take it all up, divide it up amongst them and just try to be a little bit better. And I do appreciate his ministry there just because of having a sister and brother-in-law in southern Germany going to Liechtenstein uh, there. I mean, you think about a missionary coming home, put it like this. Imagine if I told you I needed to be gone for the next six months. wonder what kind of church would still be here when I get back in six months. See, we don't think about that in the States, do we? we don't, well, a preacher's gone for a Sunday or he's gone for a couple weeks. I kind of looked at it, Lord willing, I've probably been in the pulpit too much. I'm probably this year I'll be preaching 49 of the 52 Sunday mornings. You got me you know, for the most part. But can you imagine leaving a church, especially a young church, and say, hey, I'll be back in three months, six months. Imagine all that work, all that prayer, all that effort, and to be able to say, I don't have no one to leave it to. So that's definitely a wonderful ministry that they have and that they're doing there. And I hope you'd be praying uh, for them for that. But we're going to be tonight in Hebrews uh, chapter number seven, Hebrews chapter number seven. And we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and with this understanding and this looking at the book of Hebrews as this theme, and we finally got to this particular title that we're going to look at tonight is this, is that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is greater. And when we go through the book of Hebrews here in just a moment, we're going to read a lot of verses tonight. Tonight's going to be a little different for me, okay, because you know me, you, you know I like to give you three, four, five, ten points or whatever I'm going to give you. 
like that and things. Tonight, I don't have any points for you tonight. But what we're going to do tonight is just look, looking through the scripture here, and it's going to be kind of like our Bible study. I've been looking at it. You say, Phil, you're not prepared. No, I am prepared, okay? But we're going to go through here because I believe this particular chapter of Hebrews, there are so many things from so many directions that, that the Apostle Paul, I believe, wrote the book of Hebrews, really hones in on. So some things that will be a help to us. But let's pray, and we'll get into our passage. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the night. Lord, just to even be able just to get together with your people. Lord, and pray. Lord, thank you that you're a God that not only can hear our prayer, but you are the God and only God that can answer our prayers. And Lord, we pray for even our responses to how you answer those prayers, or may even our responses reflect Christ's likeness in the way that we respond to what you do and what you don't do. And Lord, I just pray you be with those tonight that are hurting. Lord, I know people in this room have family members and and maybe friends whom they either are going through hard times or maybe even loss of life. And Lord, I just pray you just help. Lord, you may rule and overrule the situation. But Lord, we also want to stop and praise you for all the great things you've done. As you say in your word, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But Lord, as we look at your word for the next few moments, I pray as David prayed that I cry unto the Lord and that the Lord would hear our prayer. And Lord, thank you for all you do for us in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we go through particular looking at the book of Hebrews here, especially in chapter 7, there's kind of the idea of how Jesus taught. How many of you are people that you like to hear audio, like audio is the best way for you? How many of you are basically visual people? You do a lot better visual, okay? I basically could do it like this for our vernacular. How many of you are book people and how many of you are movie people, okay? How many of you are movie people? Okay, how many of you are book people? How many so spiritual? You're just both. Okay, all right, very good. You're okay, you're both. All right. Well, you know what I mean when I say like a, a visual aid or what I would call a word picture. I love any time that you can take something and do a word picture, so to speak, and help someone to understand something. You know, I've, I've used several of those over the years of being here, and I mainly you think, well, man, Phil, you did that to help you. No, really, I did it to help myself <laughs> to be a help because it helps just drive home a lot of times when you do word pictures. In fact, a lot of the ways that Jesus communicated in the Gospels was through word pictures. In fact, the parables and miracles, different things, Jesus would communicate in ways that we would understand. In particular, in the Gospels, when you read, you find Jesus, when he's walking and talking with his disciples a lot, he uses a lot of word pictures. Like, for instance, when they were walking one day, if you remember some of the parables, it says when he was walking, what did Jesus see? He saw a lady that had all of her furniture out of her house, and she was sweeping and cleaning out of her house. And he says, what happened? If you lose a coin, what happened? He says, you'll turn over everything. You'll clean the whole house. Why? Because you want to find that one coin. That's the one thing that you want to find. He talked about things like that. He went a little bit further, and it talked about how Jesus saw mustard seeds, and he'd been down and pick up some mustard seeds, and he would say, you want to know what faith is? Faith is like if you have faith of a mustard seed, how this little seed that's just barely can fit in the crack of your hand can grow to such a large tree that birds of prey even could come and lodge there. He would use those different examples. He would even say things like, let's just take a shepherd. You see a shepherd over there. And let's say he has 100 sheep, and one of those sheep goes away. Jesus said he will leave those 90 and 9 to go find that one sheep. He liked to use word pictures to help his disciples understand. By the way, that's why I loved about a year ago when we went through our series on the parables. I love that because it's the idea of Jesus saying, let me explain myself by ways that you can see or by word pictures, some things that you can understand. 
And, you know, he used all kinds of those things that he would do. But it wasn't just Jesus that would do that. In the Old Testament, he did it too. One of the books that I love, but it's kind of heart-wrenching a little bit, in the Old Testament is the book of Hosea. Hosea was a book where God says, hey, I'm going to use some of my Old Testament prophets to express what's going on, my love for them, their disobedience to me. If you remember correctly with Hosea, Hosea was a prophet, a godly man, and God said, hey, here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I need you to demonstrate to my people our relationship. And he says, Hosea, I need you to go marry a prostitute. Can you imagine Hosea? Did you just say prostitute? Yeah, I need you to go marry a prostitute, Hosea. And not only are you going to marry a prostitute, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to marry her, and she's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to rip your heart out out of your chest, and she's going to have children by her, and she's going to leave you and leave your children, and she's going to go back into that lifestyle. In fact, Hosea, you're going to have to sell everything you have to buy back your wife. Now, that was a nutshell real quick of the book of Hosea. Now, can you imagine Hosea going, Why? Well, the reason that you're going to go through all that, all that pain, all that betrayal, and the reason you're going to go back and the reason you're going to buy your wife out of the slave trade to buy her back to be yourself is because of this, because of how much I love my people and how much and I'm willing to give everything to buy back what was already mine to begin with. By the way, I love Hosea because Hosea is a great picture of what was already God's, which is us, even though we betray him. God is willing to pay the ultimate price with his son. Why? To buy us back what was already his. It's kind of like if you come to my house and steal my car. Well, I might praise the Lord. But anyhow, let's say you come to my house and you steal my car. And then later on, I'm driving down and I see my car and it's got a for sale sign. And I pull up and say, dude, I know that's my car. Well, I, I, how do you know? It's, well, it's missing the door handle on the driver's side. I know it's my car, man. Well, I don't care what you know. This is the price of the car. You have to buy the car back. And by the way, there's another guy standing over there. He says, well, I want the car too. And we both start bidding back and forth against each other. And I got to outbid him. You say, that's dumb. That would never happen. That's kind of the idea of what Hosea did with his wife. There's lots of characters in the, in the Old Testament where God uses these pictures and God uses different things in that. And so I could talk about those all night. We never reach Hebrews. We're going to have a hard time getting through this anyways, but I'm going to do the best I can as we go through this. But what I want you to see here going through Hebrews chapter number seven is this, is that when we read through this, there's a lot of word pictures that set up some things that happen. I don't know how many of you may have been here that night, but a couple of Sunday nights ago, uh, as you may know, on Sunday nights, we're going through the life of Abraham. And it's not just me, but it's myself, Brother Micah and Brother Will are going through that. About two weeks ago, Brother Will spoke out of uh, Hebrews chapter, excuse me, out of Genesis chapter number uh, 14 and he got to this character that we're about to read about and this character he got to read about was a guy by the name of Melchizedek that sounds like a fun name right there doesn't it? Melchizedek I'm probably saying it wrong and what's interesting about Melchizedek that we're going to see here in just a moment and as brother Will talked a little bit about those couple of Sunday nights ago out of Genesis 14 is this Abraham everybody guys Abraham Abraham goes to battle with a bunch of kings there in the Sodom and Gomorrah area. And Abraham has victory. He kills these kings. And on his way back, he comes into this king called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek shows up on the scene. It doesn't tell us anything about him. I mean, he literally just pops out of nowhere. There's just a few verses in Scripture that are given to Melchizedek. It's back in Genesis 14 
and then what we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter number 7. And that is really, really odd for the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, it's really odd because in the Old Testament, you always read when a character comes onto play, they always tell you who they are, who they're the son of, where they're from, how long they live, how they die. Melchizedek doesn't do that. Okay? And so there's some kind of things I want us to see here. So let's start reading here in chapter 7, verse number 1, okay? It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now let me stop here for a second. I know I didn't get very far. Okay, I got you. Melchizedek, that name translate this, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It also says king of Salem. Salem is interpreted peace. Okay, so, so take this in for a second. So we have the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That sounds like somebody that we know of in the New Testament. We read about just a little bit. That sounds like somebody, maybe a little an eternal character that we talk about. Yeah. And so let's keep going on here. So you have Melchizedek, it says, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Okay? So just to give you an idea here just a little bit, just to kind of plays back into Genesis chapter 14, what has happened is Abraham has went to this battle against the kings. Abraham defeats the kings. Abraham's probably exhausted. Abraham's coming back, and out of nowhere pops up this guy called Melchizedek, who is known as the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And it says something very interesting happens to Abraham, okay? Father Abraham, the patriarch. It says over in Genesis chapter number 14, Genesis 14, and verse number 18, it talks about something that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. It says after he comes back from the battle, after he comes back from fighting against the kings, it says that he gives him what? It says he gives him bread and gives him wine. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about giving him bread and wine? Okay, remember Melchizedek, you got the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and he's offering to what? A very weary, a very exhausted Abraham. He's offering him bread and wine. Bread in the Bible is a symbol of sustenance and strength, and wine is a symbol of life and joy. So get this, Abraham, exhausted from battle, just finished slaughtering the kings, comes across the king of righteousness and peace, and this king of righteousness and peace offers him what? Strength and life. What a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. When we come, and remember, Paul is talking to Hebrews. So they're, of course, going to be all Old Testament. They're going to love that. He's saying, you need to remember something. He says, you need to remember that here you have the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and what does he offer? He offers strength. He offers life in those things. And so when I see that, I also think of something else. Not this Sunday night, but next Sunday night, the following Sunday night, during that Sunday evening service, we're going to do our Christmas uh, communion, Lord's Supper uh, communion. I love that service. We did it last year. It's just a wonderful time as we get close to celebrating the birth of Christ to ultimately realize that why did Jesus come? He come to die for our sins. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have Christ on the cross unless you have Christ in the, in the manger. You don't have that. I believe celebrate both. But I believe it's a wonderful time of year to celebrate the communion because why? This do in remembrance of me. 
But what is it that Jesus, just before he's betrayed, just before he's beaten, just before he goes to the cross, what does he give his disciples? Bread and wine. He gives them life, joy, also life, a symbol of joy. It also gives them bread, sustenance, and peace. He gives those things. And I'm like, Phil, you get all that out of verse 1? Yeah, I got a lot of that verse 1. You're like, there's 28 verses. Don't worry. It's not going to be that bad, okay? But here's the thing I enjoyed studying that and just trying to help us understand. Some of y'all might not quite as excited as I was about that. But anyhow, all right. I just thought that was really cool. Hey, I'll say like, have you ever read a verse and you're like, yeah, no, Melchizedek, okay, whatever. I don't really care. It don't really mean a lot. But when you study the Bible and really dig about what's in the Bible, when it talks about Abraham who is tired and weary and Abraham gets from gets life and gets peace from the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Boy, it just reminds me of Christ in that. Okay, so I got excited. I'll keep on hopping here. Okay, verse number two. Now it says, speaking of it, it says, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So that first part says this, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Now, you say, what does that mean? That means this. It means Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Now, you got to remember, Abraham comes back from the war against kings. Abraham has all of these spoils. So every king he defeated, he had whatever possessions they had. So he brings it with him, and on his way back, the king of righteousness and peace says, let me give you bread, let me give you wine, let me refresh you and give life back unto you. And you see what Abraham does? out of love and respect back, let me give a tenth of everything I have to you. Now, some of y'all are really scared right now because what do you think I'm going to say? Can I explain this to you? There's a difference between modern-day Christians and our thought of tithing versus what the Hebrews thought, okay? And I'll explain it like this. When Abraham gave a tenth of all he owned, it was not the idea, oh, I have to give you a tenth. It was the idea that Hebrews gave a tenth of all they own that with this thought in mind. I'm going to give it to you because everything I have is yours anyways. I'm going to give you this tenth, and it's not the rest of it's mine. I'm going to give you this as a symbol of saying it all belongs to you anyways. It's not mine. It's all yours anyways. It's not the idea, oh, I've got to do this in order to be blessed. Also, God will bless me. No, it's like, hey, this 10% is yours. Actually, everything's yours, so I'm just going to give it all to you. I used to use this example. I thought it was a decent example. If you got a better one, more power to you. Uh, I used to take and explaining tithing, I would take 10 $1 bills and I would put them on a table and say, here's the thing I did with this little tithing. I say, you can have all 10 $1 bills. You can have all of it. Keep it. It's yours. Or take one off and I put it on the altar. I said, or you can have these nine blessed. Which one do you want? You can have all ten, or you can say, God, they're all yours anyways. I'm going to give you this because I'm just using it as a symbol that they're all yours, or you can have all nine blessed. I tell you, I'm not, I'm not preaching on tithing tonight. That's not the issue what I'm doing here tonight. But can I just throw this out here at you? This is a time of year where if there's something that gets cheapened out of our life, it is giving to God, giving to people, giving to missionaries. This is the month where people just go, because we're so busy giving to people 
that honestly sometimes we're trying to impress that we don't really care about anyways, but we just want to impress them. But can I encourage you with something that I've learned a long time ago? And I learned it a long time ago, and God's helped me during the hard times. You can never outgive God. Can't do it. What does he say in Malachi? Prove me. He says, prove me. You know what that's God saying? God's like, try me. Try me. Give sacrificially to me. God's saying that I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't even partake of it in that. So what I'm trying to get you to understand here is not the principle of I got to give this 10% or I got to do this. No, that's not what I'm saying. Abraham says, I'm going to tithe off of what I have just because it's all yours anyways, is those mentality and thinking. So some of y'all might be worried about me. You can probably ask a lot of people to go to church here for a long time. That's probably the first time I've talked about money in probably three years. Okay, So just wanted to throw that out there at you. But it's the idea of I really have it all blessed because it's all God's. Then have none of God's blessing and hoard it like it's mine. Because I find that when I really act like it's all mine, it doesn't stay with me anyways in that. But anyhow, back on to scripture. Okay, good. All right, let's get down to verse number three, okay? So it talks about Melchizedek, and look what it says about him a little bit further in verse three. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning or of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now here's the thing I need you to understand about verse number three. Verse number three of Hebrews chapter seven really confuses a lot of people because they look at this and say, well, I have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I've actually heard people say, now do I also have a fourth part? Do I have God Melchizedek? Is that, is that what that's saying? And, and no, that's not what it's referencing because when it says this, that there's no beginning and no end, it's not saying that Melchizedek is eternal. It's talking about the story because like I said, in the Old Testament, you normally got everything about where a guy came from, where he lived, who his family was, and all that. And you don't get that in Melchizedek, okay? You don't get that. So just to pass through this wonderful part about Melchizedek is this. If I can make it as clear as possible as a word picture, there's a word picture tonight just in these first four verses. Melchizedek is Christ. Abraham is you. Abraham is me. So plug in, again, those first three verses right there. Everywhere you see Abraham, he's talking about what we should do. Everywhere he talks about Melchizedek, it's a picture of Christ. Because Christ, there is what? The beginning. There is no beginning. There is no end. He is eternal in those things. So you just kind of see those things and kind of go on through here. But uh, let me get to verse 4. And again, I know we're not going to get real far, but we'll have fun in what we do. Okay? Um, verse number 4, it says, Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, it gets really wordy here, and I'm not going to get into all this here in just a moment. But to give you an idea and understanding is this. It says, think who this guy was, that even he is greater than Abraham. Now, Abraham is a patriarch. You know, we talk about the patriarch of the family. Let, let me kind of give you an understanding here a little bit when it talks about, like, the patriarch. Patriarchs in the Old Testament did not tithe. The head of the family did not. They gave to the head. The, the head did not give down. In Old Testament days, the patriarchs did not bend a knee to anybody at all. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, Thanksgiving just happened. We got to do two Thanksgivings with my mom, my mom's side and my dad's side. I am the preacher in the family. But when it comes time to pray and bless the meals, Danny Rogers, my dad, is the one that prays for the meals. 
okay? You say, well, aren't you Pastor Phil Rutt? Well, that doesn't matter at all, okay? When I go into the house where my father is, he says, that's too patriarchal. No, that's, that's a respect thing that I do, okay? I go in there. I don't walk in and say, hey, Dad, I'm a pastor. I got this. I'm probably not going to get the prayer through the roof anyways by that point. We had to go around. We go in my dad's house. We prayed over cereal. I looked to my dad. He might look at me and say, hey, Philip, why don't you pray? And I did that. We went to my mom's side of the family, and we were there, and we all, they, my mom's side of the family, big hand holders, you know, they're very touchy. They're those kind of people, and they got to make the weird-looking circle. They kind of look like a weird egg. We all holding hands, you know, stretched out. You ever hold hands on one person, they're all sitting like this, and you're, like, spread apart like that? That was me. You know, I'm like this, and I'm like, please pray, or even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so we get there, and we stop. They didn't look at me. They looked at my dad. My dad prayed. Went to my mom, went to my dad's side. When my dad said I got there and dad looked at me and says, hey, you pray? You're saying, well, that's stupid. No, no, no. He's the patriarch. And to understand Jesus, and I know this doesn't sound like a big thing to us, but here's what Paul's trying to tell these Hebrews. There was nobody greater than Abraham. He says, Jesus is greater. Melchizedek is greater. Patriarchs do not bow their knee to anybody. Patriarchs do not pay homage or tithes to anybody. But he says, but you do to Melchizedek. And that's in our lives. You know what? Because I'm hoping, and my prayer is this, that I hope that my dad, as a patriarch of our family, still bows his knee to Christ, still pays homage to Christ, still pays tithes. You see what I'm saying? Because of those things going on. And by the way, I do that, like I said, is this. You say, well, Phil, you're the pastor, whatever. You know what? I, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. <laughs> My kids wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. And I know there's other people involved. I get that. But to understand the idea of that is that he is the patriarch in that way and understand that. Because here's the big thing. You say, why is that so important? You want to know the major difference between us and Islam, Islam people? It's not what we do with Abraham. It's what we do with Jesus. Here's where us and the, and the followers of Islam separate. Jesus is greater and they won't go there with us. They say Jesus is, but not Jesus is greater. Jesus is not God, okay? And that's the issue with that. And that's not a hate thing. That's not a hate thing at all. But what you do with Jesus is the most important thing in your life. What you do with Jesus is that. And so anyways, we go on down through here and see some other things. We'll keep going here. Um, a lot of great things. If I could just summarize for you real quick what verses 5 through 10 say, and I know you're all amazed that I'm going to skip that many verses, but I'll let you read it. It's a really wordy right there. But here's what verses 5 through 10 saying. There are priests, not high priests, but they're priests. And their job was to do this. It was to be a counselor. It'd be like this. It'd be like you have priests, not the high priest. But if you had an issue, maybe you struggled in, in some way, you struggled with lust or you struggled uh, with pride, or you struggled with something, you would go to that priest. It'd be like a modern-day counselor is what it would be. You would go to that priest and say, hey, here's the things in my life that are not right and they would take the law the ten commandments take the law and they would measure your life up against those things the things that are good and the things that are wanting okay and what they would do is saying okay the things that are good keep faithful here's where you're wanting at and let's pray that you start doing what's right they would sacrifice an animal pray for your sins and you be on your way that's what a priest would do okay 
That was really quickly what those verses are. But that's what a Levitical priest would do. And here's what verses 6 through 10 are saying. They're ultimately saying this. There is great value in what the priests do. There's great value in counselors, self-help people, however you want to say it. But in the end, it's secondary to what Jesus wants to do in your life. I'll put it to you like this. Somebody that's an alcoholic, do you want to see them quit drinking? Absolutely. Do you want to see them get victory over that in your life? Yes. But is that the ultimate goal? No. It's for them to have salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, if you have an alcoholic that gets over being an alcoholic or drunk, whatever you want to call it, but they die without Christ, we missed it. You know what I mean? And that's what he's saying in those verses here that I'm running through real quick. He's saying the priest had a job to help better you, but Jesus has come for something even higher because he wants to give you life and joy and peace, and he wants to give you eternity in those things. And that's what he's trying to say. Even though, it's, even though those things are great, there's something that Jesus wants to do in the hearts and lives of men and women in those things. Those things are great, but that's not the ultimate goal in that. Okay? Now, we're going to look at a few verses down here. Let's look in verse number 11. It says, If therefore perf perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Okay, so here's what's going on in this, okay? And it's kind of a big-time text that I'm going to take a little bit of time into. What it's basically saying is this. Biblical counseling... The priest, all those are secondary to what Jesus wants to do in your life because here's what it's saying. If you could be right by just obeying the law, why did Jesus come? That's what it's saying. What that verse 11 is saying, if I could be right in the eyes of God by doing these things and not doing these things, why in the world did Jesus leave heaven? Why did he do that? Be, you know, in fact, if you could be right by keeping the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't be singing songs about Jesus. We'd be singing songs about Moses. We would, because Moses, Ten Commandments, Father of all that stuff, we get that. If we can have justification, salvation, through keeping the law and abstaining from things, why did Jesus come? We wouldn't be singing about the blood of Jesus. We'd be singing about the law of Moses is what we would sing about. And we just got through singing some great Christmas songs. I, don't, I didn't hear Moses one time. You know Why? Because Jesus had to come. He had to come fulfill what the law could not do. The law can't do it. Now you're saying, Phil, I get that. Problem is, today there's a lot of people that sit in good Baptist churches or good whatever churches, and they'll say, Jesus paid it all, but in their life they're thinking, I better do this or I'm going to die and go to hell. I better give this or I'm going to die and go to hell. I bumped into somebody not long ago that's been in a church before, and I said, hey, how you doing? Good. They're like, oh, yeah. They said, you need to pray for me. I ain't been in church in a while. I'm probably going to hell, ain't I? And I thought, oh, you're joking on the outside about how you probably really feel on the inside. And, and that's why I tell you, that, that's what scares me about our church on a Sunday morning level when we see the, the people that are here. It scares me that there's people that will sit here and say, man, that's a great song. Church was great. I love Jesus but they're still trusting in the law, the things that they have to do or should do, and they're really trusting in that to go to heaven. They would never verbally say it, but that's really what they're trusting in. 
It's what the law couldn't do. Uh, there's a great um, quote, if I can explain it like this. Uh, Philip Yancey uh, said this in his book, What's so, Ma What's so Amazing About Grace. By the way, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a pretty cool book. What's so amazing about grace? He says this. If right standing with God could occur because of good bookkeeping, we'd be worshiping Moses and not Jesus. If right standing before God could occur because of good bookkeeping or life the way you live, we'd be worshiping Moses and not Jesus. So anyhow, so just to go back and us to understand is this, is the idea is this, why would Jesus need to be sent at all if all we had to do was just be good? Why would he need to be sent at all? And because you say, I say that, and then I'll hop off this, and I know our time's almost gone. If you talk to the average person that grows up in the Bible Belt of the South and ask them, are you going to heaven? They, they will, a lot of people tell you this. I think I've been pretty good. You ever hear that? I, I'm not so bad. I live a pretty good life. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a church member. I'm not this, this, this. But I'm not that either. You know what? There's, it's showing you that like, why did Jesus come? Okay? So... A lot of great verses here that we could go through. I encourage you to read them. I'm going to skip all the way down to verse number 19, and I won't tell you how many pages of notes. I just went right by doing that, okay? I can email it to you if you just have nothing else to do one day. But anyhow, and this kind of understands it. Look what it says in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, understand what it says. The law makes nothing perfect. But go on, look what it says here. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. All right. So what I want us to see here and understand here is something that's very, very important, I think, for us to understand. Keeping the law made nobody or made nothing perfect. What I'm kind of saying is this. Do you remember when you kind of, I want to say when you got saved, but I, I want to say it maybe a little different way. Do you remember what happened whenever Christ just kind of came alive inside of you? Like you might have got saved at 6 or 4 or 40 or whatever it is. But you know, when that moment that Christ just came alive inside of you and no longer things were your duty or responsibility, you did them because you loved God and you saw how probably deceitful and your heart was in that way. And you notice how things kind of die down a little bit. And here's why I want to take a moment. And this is kind of something I'm a little passionate about. And I'm probably glad I only got like two minutes to do this. How many of you have been saved for 10 years or longer? Go ahead and put your hand up. Good. All right. For you that have not been saved for 10 years or longer, you're probably better off than we are in this particular boat. Okay. All right. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is this. I find out the longer I'm a Christian, if I'm not careful... I try to do, I get more caught up in what I do for God rather than my love for God. Does that make sense? I get more caught up in what I do for God, traditions and rituals, more than my continual love for God. When I first got saved, man, my love for God, my zeal was off the chain. Yours was too. You probably remember, you got saved, you thought everybody was going to hell. You want to invite everybody to go to church. You know, that's just the way everything was. You want to do that. And if we're not careful, I'll make sure I say this the right way we can become what we hate let me give you an example um i remember growing up going to church and and, and and stay with me on this 
I remember that going to church, there were certain traditions of how you acted, what you wore, what you said, that trumped anything. I mean, I, I've told you examples before that I remember going to church some as a little kid and seeing other people come to church, maybe not dressed a certain way, and those people may, may felt like you don't belong here. Now, I don't feel like we got that here. But you know what I've noticed in churches over the years? Like, say, some churches are so staunch about dress or music or, or whatever it is. You know, th is their gospel <laughs> that shouldn't be their gospel? And then they get mad and they go over here and start this church over here. And we have freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And then let somebody to come over wearing or doing what reminded them of what they left. And then they become the very thing they hate. <laughs> so you can't be here if you're going to act like that. You ain't going to be here if you're going to dress like that. You ain't going to be here if you're going to have that, that kind of music. You're not going to be here. And we've got to be very careful because there is a paper-thin line between your expectations and the things that you hate. That's why there's 17 different Baptist churches in Milledgeville. You know why? Because let's just be honest. At certain points of time, the gospel really wasn't the main thing the gospel became something else and that's why verse 19 i love it i have it underlined for the law made nothing perfect nothing we're not going to have perfect church not going to have it you know i talked to a guy this week invite him to church you know the first thing he asked me you got screens I said, you got one in your house, Bob? I mean, you got one in your house, bro? I mean, you got one in your house? Yeah, but it don't belong in church. I said, okay. I, I said, first question wasn't, do you preach the Bible? What's your stuff? Santa? He goes, hey, you got screens in church? And you know what I was like? For the law made nothing perfect. Okay? And by the way, I got tons of more stuff here. But we ain't going to get to do it, okay? But anyhow, y'all laughing at me because y'all know this is how I am. But anyhow, but I want to encourage you with something tonight, just in looking at all this tonight. One, if nothing else, thank God for the Melchizedek that found you as an Abraham who was weary on your way that was just worn out from life and came to you and says, let me offer you let me offer you the bread. Let me offer you the wine. Let me give you life. Let me give you peace. And let that turn you into, I want to do this for Christ, not that I have to do it for Christ. And may it also help us remember at the end of the day, make sure whatever your gospel is, it's the right gospel. Make sure it's the right thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you, Lord, for this time we could be together. And